There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod. I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm a Professor of Public Policy at the Crawford School at the Australian National University and I'm Director of the Poverty and Inequality Research Centre and the Children's Policy Centre. And I am here once again with my pod buddy, Anna Greta Hunter. So I'm Anna Greta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and physician and I'm the Human Futures Fellow with the College of Health and Medicine here at the ANU. Sharon, it's great to be back in the virtual studio with you. We are again recording remotely during uh, periods of pandemic and quarantine and isolation, et cetera, et cetera. So we'll indulge our, our, uh, beg our listeners' indulgence again for the potential for, for interruptions from chickens and wildlife and family members. Absolutely. We thought we'd be back in the studio, but we didn't quite get there. Maybe next week. We, we got ahead of ourselves, but hopefully it's on the horizon. Um, Sharon, how did you find last week's conversation? I, I find I'm still thinking quite a lot about the conversation we had last week on preventing violence against women and girls with disabilities. What were your thoughts? Yeah, um, I've I've been thinking a great deal about that conversation. And as I thought about that conversation, I, I thought about some research that we did in Indonesia just prior to, to the pandemic, looking at multidimensional poverty. And what we found in that research was that People living with disability, but particularly women with living with disability, were most likely to be multidimensional poor. And I, just one of the things that has stayed with me from that research was that women, in particular, living with a disability, were much more likely um, to have very high levels of work, engaging in both paid work and unpaid work, so contributing enormously but they were most likely to be hungry mm. and to be skipping meals. And I guess as I, as I was thinking about issues of violence against women and girls with disability, I was also remembering you know, those findings and what we heard from people. And I think this, this is an area where we just have to think differently. Yeah because people's lives uh, are being destroyed. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and the framework that's provided by the Our Watch approach I, I still find so helpful um, in, in empowering each one of us to to be part of the solution. It really is. This is world-leading work that they're doing. It's It's amazing stuff. So Policy Forum Pod today, of course, is produced by policyforum.net. We're based at the Crawford School of Public Policy here at the Australian National University. The Crawford School offers graduate degrees in executive education programs in public policy, applied economics, environmental management, national security, and much, much more. If you're interested, you can visit crawford.anu.edu.au slash study to find out more. And we highly recommend uh, that you check out what's available here at the ANU. So, Sharon, what are we talking about today? We have got a conversation that I have been looking forward to for some time, and I know you have too, Anna Greta. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so for decades, the principles of economic globalisation have been some of the, the key forces shaping public policy making globally, shaping our working lives and our consumption patterns. But the status quo assumption that globalisation is good for all is being seriously challenged, and we've seen that over the past several years. Far from, from dry-seeming economic arguments, there are narratives emerging about globalisation that are often playing out in ways that are deeply emotional for many people. 
And these are ideas that influence people's lives and their livelihoods, and we see them shaping national elections, from the election of Donald Trump in the United States to Brexit in the UK to anti-austerity protests in Europe after the global financial crisis, to who is and who isn't allowed to build 5G infrastructure. These debates are happening to all of us around us all the time. Late last year, Anthea Roberts from the Australian National University and Nicholas Lamb from Queen's University in Canada wrote what is an amazing book that seeks to better understand and explain the debates around globalisation and how they're playing out in contemporary society. Six Faces of Globalisation, Who Wins, Who Loses and Why It Matters is an international award-winning book. It's a guide to the major public debates about economic globalization that we see playing out around us today. And it helps us to think about how we might be able to come together and to bridge some of these, what are often polarized narratives. So today I am very excited to welcome both Anthea and Nicholas to the pod. And Anna Greta, maybe you would like to provide some formal introductions. I'm so delighted to introduce our two guests. First is Anthea Roberts. She's Professor at the School of Regulation and Global Governance, or REGNET, here at the Australian National University. Anthea is an interdisciplinary researcher and international lawyer who focuses on new ways of thinking about complex and evolving global fields. From 2008 to 2015, Anthea taught at the London School of Economics, Columbia Law School and Harvard Law School. In 2020, she was visiting professor at Harvard Law School, teaching geoeconomics. Anthea chairs the ANU Working Group on Geoeconomics. Anthea's first book, International Law International, won numerous prizes, including the American Society of International Law's Book Prize and was Oxford University Press's top-selling law monograph worldwide in 2017 to 2018. In 2019, the League of Scholars named Anthea as the world's leading international law scholar and Australia's leading law scholar as well. Welcome, Anthea. It's great to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. And beside Anthea is Nicholas Lamp. Nicholas is the Associate Professor at Queen's University Faculty of Law in Ontario, Canada. His area of expertise is in international trade law, international lawmaking process and narratives around the distributive effects of economic globalisation. Prior to joining Queen's, Nicholas worked as a dispute settlement lawyer at the Appellant Body Secretariat of the World Trade Organisation. He received his PhD in law from the London School of Economics and Political Science in 2013. His doctoral thesis investigates the origins and implications of the discourses, practices and techniques that shape international lawmaking in the trade context. Nicholas, it's great to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. So, We are going to talk, I hope, in depth today about the fantastic book that you've both released at the end of last year, The Six Faces of Globalisation, and I'm really looking forward to getting into some of the details around the book and around the narratives of economic globalisation more broadly. But perhaps a good place to start is asking both of you what led you down this line of inquiry. Why did you want to write this book? Anthea, can we start with you? Sure. So this is a book that actually uh, the two of us started at a similar time, but we were initially working independently. So we're both trade and investment lawyers and have been for about the last 20 years. And we were in a field that had always been celebrated as a a sort of a really positive contribution through economic globalisation. And we were very used to that. And we were also not very used to our field being highly politicised. But by about 2016, we were both witnessing, along with many other around the world, a real pushback against economic globalisation with the Brexit vote and with uh, Donald Trump's election. And it made us both really want to take stock of our field and understand this pushback. And that was very particularly as well because um, many people in our fields treated these as though that they were just um, stupid, that they these people just didn't understand, they were economically illiterate and they should be shut down. Whereas our instincts was that there were multiple narratives coming to the fore that not only had different interesting observations to make about the effects of economic globalisation, but that captured different senses of values about how to approach this question. And our sense was if we wanted to understand this complex field, we needed to understand those different narratives and what was motivating them. So as Anthea said, really this project started out of the dissatisfaction with the state 
of the debate uh, when Donald Trump was elected and the Brexit vote happened in the United Kingdom. There was this strong defensive reaction among many international lawyers and international economists, this feeling that we have to defend uh, the international uh, liberal order, we have to defend globalization at all costs. And um, our impulse in starting this project was to take a step back and, and provide a map uh, to the debate. And, and the hope that animates the project is that maybe if we if we are more empathetic uh, towards others uh, other narratives other views if we understand them better we may uh, may be able to overcome some of the polarization that that really exploded uh, in our field in 2016 and um during the trump presidency the book does a, a beautiful job of laying out those narratives and helping us to think through the the complexity of them but what underpins each and we'll we'll talk through those different narratives over, over the course of this this conversation but let's start as you do in the book with what you describe as the establishment narrative and this is the the conventional wisdom that economic liberal liberalization coupled with good governance and the rule of law will necessarily lead us to to prosperity and to peace and to a better life for all Anthea, could could I ask you to talk us through the emergence of this narrative and how it came to be the dominant narrative that really shaped the status quo for several decades? Absolutely. So, so we call this the establishment narrative because certainly when we were sort of growing up in the field in the post-Cold War period, but I would say also earlier before that, after the end of World War II, there was this real sort of push, particularly in the Western world, but then later across the world, to think of economic globalization and things like free trade as being things that increase peace and prosperity for all. And that was the idea that by, through mechanisms like free trade, we can get, create greater integration with each other. We can specialize we can play to our comparative advantage and trade for the rest. And this will not only massively increase economic efficiency and lift hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, but it will make the sort of consumer life for all of us in the West um, cheaper, better, so we have better quality of living. And crucially, that this is not just about um, making us better off, it is actually also about helping to secure world peace, that what we saw in the sort of breakdown of trading relations and protectionism before the world wars was something that we wanted to avoid. And so we wanted to find a way to peacefully cooperate with each other, integrate with each other, have legal dispute resolution through things like the WTO. And that this would actually uh, encourage peace because you're, you're much less likely to go to war with your, your customers or those that you're interdependent with. And so this was really the promise of the establishment narrative that was really associated with not just the establishment uh, international organisations, so the World Bank, the IMF, the WTO, but also what we saw in centre-left and centre-right political parties in the West and in many other parts of the world. And it's associated with those very positive phrases like free trade is a a rising tide that lifts all boats, or it's about growing the pie so that everybody can have a larger slice of the pie. Now, this particular narrative, even though it was very positive, uh, did recognise that there might be uh, some short-term losers, some people that lost their jobs to things like offshoring. But what it said was, look, um, these are pe these people are really going to have to adjust. Just like with technology requires adjustment, so too these people will need to adjust by retraining, by moving. And to the extent that there are so some that are greater winners and some that are greater losers, we can deal with a lot of those issues at the domestic level through redistribution. And so that was the narrative that was prevailing in the economic discourse, in the public discourse, in the political discourse for many decades, but really hypercharged after the end of the Cold War uh, in the 1990s and 2000s. And Anthea, you, you describe that as, as the establishment narrative and you've, you've explained to us beautifully how that became dominant. It was certainly dominant in the global north, but to what extent do you think that establishment narrative captured the, the support of countries of the global south? It's an incredibly good question. So one of the things we do in this book is we um, we track the six narratives that we think have been dominating debates in the West. And we do that because the really strong pushback you see against the world trading system and economic globalization in 2016 is a pushback that you're seeing in the Western countries. Now, of course, 
there are many, some of those narratives you, we see elsewhere around the world, but there are other narratives that are, are much stronger in other places around the world that we don't see as strongly in, um, in the Western debates. But that's not to say that what we see elsewhere in the world is, is uniform. So, for example, for decades and decades and decades, you would have had what we identify as the neo-colonial narrative, which is a narrative that's often representative of the global South, um, that says, th- that says that the global trading system has actually been an extractive approach. It's been an extractive approach. First, that first world countries did this in extractive approach through colonialism and then after colonialism in a neo-colonial way through their multinational companies. And we see that narrative as a very strong pushback against the global trading system by countries like India and Brazil in things like the WTO. But interestingly, this is not a uniform narrative outside the West. And so, for example, when we present this work in China, uh, the one narrative that seems to be conspicuously absent in the Chinese debates is this neo-colonial narrative, because their experience with economic globalization over the past few decades has been much more one of Asia rising or China rising. And it's been a very positive um, of experience of economic globalization and it is export driven. So I think one of the things we would want to make sure is that even if there had been a dominant narrative in international institutions and in Western debates, that is not necessarily the dominant narrative all the way around the globe, but also what's dominant in different parts of the globe outside the West can differ depending on different countries and different classes within those countries' experiences of economic globalization. If I may just add to that, it, it's really uh, striking uh, looking back um, at uh, 2016, how much of a turning point it is. Because before 2016, the main critics of globalization were to be found in the global south. And um, that was particularly prominent, as Anthea said, in the, in the global trading system. And um, since 2016, suddenly we have the greatest pushback against globalization in the global north. Of course, we always had NGOs and labor unions that were um, uh, protectionist or advocating um, against globalization in, in the north. But but you had the sea change in the dynamics that that countries such as China have become since 2016 much more upbeat about globalization than than many in the West. Maybe just following on from that, Nicholas, the the structure of the book is to take us through the sides of the Rubik's Cube, the six different faces that you can see in association with economic globalisation. Uh, and Anthony has done a superb job of explaining what the dominant narrative may have been. But I wonder if you might take us through some of the other narratives that you've described in the book. Yes, I'd love to do that. So I'd, I'd like to start with the, what we call the right-wing populist narrative because it's the narrative that uh, was promoted by Trump uh, by, by the Brexit movement and it takes uh, takes issue with the central trade-off that the um, establishment narrative advocates. So the establishment narrative says essentially that yes some people will lose some people will lose their jobs but if we look at our countries in the aggregate we are going to be better off like consumers are going to enjoy cheaper products um as, as Anthea said, um, workers can adjust, they find new jobs to become more productive, so we're all going to be better off. And this right-wing populist narrative says, well, no, this this is actually, we're not willing to make that trade-off. What we're losing is worth more than what we're gaining. We may be gaining some cheap, um, uh, cheaper Amazon purchases from China, but they're not going to make us happy. In fact, what would make us happy is are the good jobs, which are the jobs that we, we're losing through free trade. That narrative is particularly strong in the United States, of course, where the loss of manufacturing jobs has had devastating impact on, on Rust Belt communities. Uh, we've all heard about the, the China shock. We've all heard about the deaths of despair. And so after 2016, this narrative really gained incre- re- incredible resonance. And, and, and it's, it's really what, what's important to understand about this narrative is that Trump and his um, and colleagues, they, it's not that they don't understand the establishment case. They, it's not that they don't understand the whole idea about adjustment, but they, they understand it and they reject it. Right? They re- ridicule it. They say, we don't want to adjust. Trump tells um, uh, the workers that you don't have to move. Don't sell your houses. Don't adjust. Don't um, essentially uh, try to try to move into other industry, take any pink color jobs uh, because they're not really manly. Like if we, if we want to be a... Um, a self-respecting nation, we have to bring the steel jobs back, the coal jobs back, the auto manufacturing jobs back. So it's it's a it's really a frontal challenge to the establishment narrative. A final comment that I wanted to make about the narrative is that it differs markedly in Europe 
and in, in the United States. And the United States has this very strong anti-trade element, whereas in Europe, it's really, it's mostly an anti-immigration and anti-supranational um, organization element. So you have the strong pushback in the United Kingdom against the European Union, also in, in Poland and Hungary. Uh, from right-wing populists, you don't have similar opposition to trade in, in Europe. In fact, the Brexiteers were trying to say that that uh, Britain would be able to trade more freely outside the European Union. So we have a, a clear distinction here between the narrative in the US and in Europe. And the, uh, as, as Nicholas has just so so clearly and powerfully explained, you know, we have the this this populist narrative, right-wing populist narrative, playing out differently in um, in the United States and in Europe. But we do see this this common thread of rising discontent that you trace to around 2016. Do you think that we are now seeing a permanent rupture in the status quo? Or do you think we we will return to the the dominant narrative that was that has shaped um, the global order in the post World War II period? So I think that we are going to um, find a different and a new equilibrium to where we have been before. I think what we trace through the the six different narratives about globalization, and in particular the the five that are the pushback on the establishment establishment narrative, are very different kind of political movements of critique about the old approach to economic globalization, increasingly one that's called the sort of neoliberal approach or the hyper-globalization approach. And my sense is that moving forward, we're not going to have no economic globalization, but we're going to have a recalibration. And that recalibration will involve taking in many of the different values that we see in the different narratives. And we see this happening in trade policy at the moment, where they're trying to think through not just free trade, but how do you incorporate concerns of workers um, to address some of what, for example, Nicholas has just been talking about, uh, to address climate change, to address corporate power to address security. And so I think where we're going to be heading towards is a more sort of kaleidoscopic approach to economic globalization that resets uh, where we are, but in a way that is um, less uh, hyper-globalized and less interdependent than it was previously. I must say, I am loving this conversation. Um, this is, is such an interesting discussion. We are going to take just a short break now, but we will be back in just a moment to continue this conversation with Anthea and Nicholas. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. So welcome back. We're here with Anthea Roberts and Nicholas Lamp, and we're talking about their book published at the end of last year, The Six Faces of Globalisation, and thinking about the complexities of the world that we're in at the moment in terms of global trade and and the politics around that. For both of you, we're wondering about how things have changed since you released the book, and you've both written on a number of ways that the narratives play out in practice, from simple things like the clothes that we wear to the complex trade issues around semiconductors in the computers that we're using right now. At the moment, as we're reading our newspapers and listening to the radio, the uh, international conflict in the Ukraine is a dominant feature of discussion. And I'm wondering how the the book uh, and the structures that you create within the book might help us understand this change in the global balance of powers. I wonder if you could use that as an example to show us how the narratives and debates around globalisation are playing out today. Anthea, would you like to start with that? 
Certainly. So we've obviously been glued to the situation in the Ukraine and in Russia, but also very particularly to the sea change that we've seen in German politics. And so let me start with that one. This is really a, a war that sort of pitted, uh, you know, beyond the sort of guns and bullets, which are obviously just uh, horrifying to everybody. It really pitted two different kind of narratives about the relationship between peace and prosperity together. So we had the establishment narrative, which was very embodied often by the European Union and particularly by Germany, which is that through interdependence, we will get peace and prosperity. And so through interdependence with things like the energy pipeline to Russia, that will actually reduce the chances of war and increase the chances of peace. And so when we sort of talk about some of the alternative narratives, one of the alternative narratives that we identify is what we call the geoeconomic narrative that basically says that understanding of the relationship between peace and prosperity has it the wrong way around. It's not that free trade leads to peace. It's that you need to have peace and trust in order to have free trade. And so what we really see in that particular narrative that has been very strongly invoked, for example, by the United States, is this concern that the kind of interdependence that we have created, particularly with geopolitical foes, the US thinking particularly of China, it is actually making us unsafe. And so that's one that sort of says economics, national security, economic security is national security and really turns on that sort of great power rivalry between the US and China, but also between democratic uh, capitalist states and, and autocratic states. Now, what we're really seeing happening in this particular conflict is we're seeing that kind of idea of how connectivity can be a weapon really coming to the fore. So we very strongly see uh, Russia threatening to make the connectivity of the pipeline a weapon with Germany. But we also see the response from the Western states through their SWIFT sanctions, uh, through cutting off of the pipeline deal, um, through their sanctions on, on Russian oligarchs. They are really sort of weaponizing the international system as a, as a weapon of war. And what we are seeing very particularly playing out in the German debates at the moment is this sea change in mentality. So when we in the book talk about the geoeconomic narrative, it's one that has been strongly led by the United States. But Europe has been more resistant and particularly Germany under Merkel was extremely resistant. She, of course, came up through East Germany and really believed in this as the way towards peace. What we're now seeing from the German government is a complete flip where they're saying sort of uh, there is no price on freedom and we cannot be reliant for our energy on Russia and we must have more strategic autonomy. That is a very, very sharp shift in Germany and Europe towards the geoeconomic narrative, but this time really with a focus on Russia as opposed to where we saw it in the book, which was the US really with a focus primarily on China. If I may add to that, it's it's absolutely striking just how radical the measures are that uh, that Europe and the United States are taking against Russia. I mean, if w one way to describe it is, is, is essentially an attempt to turn Russia into, into North Korea. And um, we always thought that decoupling would happen between the West and China, and now it's happening between the West and Russia in a much more profound way than we, we ever could imagine. Like, for example, I've just uh, read that in within three weeks, uh, the airplanes in Russia will probably not be able to fly anymore because they won't be get any um, spare parts from Boeing and Airbus anymore. We see Western oil companies divesting, losing billions of dollars uh, to move out of Russia, Apple, all these uh, champions of globalization stopping selling products in, in Russia. And all the inter interconnectivity that we have been taking for granted over the past decades it is is coming to an end with Russia, and it's it's a really questionable whether it would ever be rebuilt. In Russia itself, the reaction is in some quarters um, cheerful. Um, there's 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 um, among nationalists. There's they like the idea that this will force Russia to become more self reliant to become more autonomous, uh, to bring back manufacturing jobs. So this is also playing into pre-existing um, and pre-existing um, mood in Russia that Russia has become too dependent uh, on the West, has been trying too hard to emulate the West, and and uh, and essentially has lost has lost its way and lost its soul. So it's not just that um, Russia is suffering this passively. Of course, consumers and ordinary people are going to bear the brunt of this uh, of of these uh, sanctions. 
but there's also an ideological realignment happening in Russia that that is welcoming this new uh, decoupled world. And actually, on the ideological um, alignment, this is one where we really see the many faces of China and China trying to struggle with what policy uh, it wants to adopt in this world because it really kind of embodies quite a few of the different narratives. So we see, for example, when President Xi goes to Davos a few years ago and talks about win-win economic globalization, that he is really trying to present China as the, you know, the forward-leaning one on economic globalization and the establishment approach. But we also see, and one of the narratives we trace in the book, is the against Western hegemony narrative. And that's one where you really see an alliance between China and Russia pushing back against the idea that the Western approach to liberal um, democracies and and economic approaches to their um, market-state relations is really a one-size-fits-all that everybody needs to adopt. And they sort of collectively are pushing back against that and worried about the way in which the Western approach is is trying to dominate the international approach or the the way the West can um, play a dominant role on where it's controlling things like the financial networks. So here we see China in a really awkward position where on the one hand it's deeply embedded into the international economic system and really wants to sort of hold on to that establishment narrative. And yet on the other hand has before this moved much closer towards its reliance, uh, sorry, its relationship with Russia, which is sort of a pushback against the West. And part of that has also historically been about not intervening into the sovereign affairs of others. And then you have this come along where Russia not only sort of intervenes in this way, but the pushback that Russia is getting through this sort of financial sanctions and the weaponization by the West is something that China would be very, very concerned about it ever happening to them. So the way in which you're seeing, for example, Russian banks cut out of the SWIFT system is one of the reasons why China and Russia might want to have um, an alternative form of payments that's not not um, dollar-dominated because they don't want to be subject to this. So we really see China with these many faces of globalisation struggling to work out which one to bring to the fore in this particular conflict. It's so fascinating to hear you talk about um, the way in which the, the the leaders of some of the the, the key powers globally are, are thinking about these narratives, positioning themselves within them, and we have seen the politics of this playing out prior to the current crisis in in Ukraine. We've seen some leaders exploiting those narratives. Some have argued in a very cynical way, and Donald Trump is often pointed to as the example of that, or as, although, as you've pointed out, Trump has often connected to, to the real concerns that many people in the United States have. Um, there's also been a lot of discussion in the media over the last week or two of the way Putin is positioning himself within the politics of this for what may be political gain. I'm really interested in hearing your thoughts on where conversations are likely to go from here and whether there is still space for good faith conversations around how we might be thinking about the best interests of people across nation states and across borders, something akin to the kind of conversations we we once heard about universal human rights, or whether we're going to see a retreat into nation states where the the only concern is around the best interests of the nation and of its citizens. Yes, I mean, I think in many ways um, what you're drawing up there is really where we would see a, a sort of a relatively sharp contrast between the right-wing protectionist narrative and the geoeconomic narrative, which at their core in different ways um, have this more nationalistic uh, inter-country competitive angle to them. And the one that we would call the global threats narrative, which is really with things like climate change and with pandemics, uh, we're all in this together and we collectively need to come together to deal with these global threats, which are a matter of universal concern. And that one really doesn't see us divided into different countries that are competing with each other, but instead sees us as 
all um, people, all part of the sort of universal humanity who are all uh, on this planet and, and in the same boat and really need to work together. And you really see that tension play out in a number of different areas. We see it with climate change, but most particularly we've seen it recently with the pandemic. Um, are we going to see countries sort of hunker down and make their own decisions and grab masks and be concerned about their populations and vaccines for their people? Or are we going to be trying to vaccinate the world, recognise that this is a common problem, um, try to try to sort of share resources, make sure they go to where they're most uh, useful? What we saw as international lawyers in the 1990s and 2000s is that sort of cosmopolitan spirit that is very behind the global threats narrative had really become much more ascendant and that the sort of inter-country competition had been on the decline. Whereas what we're seeing at the moment with some of the right-wing moves but also some of these very strong geoeconomic tensions is we're seeing that sort of relative inter-country competition and great power rivalry coming more to the fore. And I think the real question for us going forward is how are those things going to intersect on things like dealing with the climate crisis? And we don't have a good answer to that at the moment. But when we sort of project forward, we really think that this sort of inter-country great power rivalry that we're seeing around the West and, and Russia and China or the US and China, and then how do we deal with global threats like climate change? We really see these two wicked problems in and of themselves will collide to be just the mother of all wicked problems going forward. If I may jump in here, um, I mean, what's striking about the last past week is I think we haven't seen the West so confident in its own values and so proud of its own values in, in many years, in many decades. So if we look at the European Union and, and, and the United States, um, they have been inspired by Ukraine um, in, in a way that, that, that we haven't, haven't really seen in a very long time. So it's almost a, a revival of the establishment narrative that we, we're seeing, particularly when it comes to, to, to political organization, this Ukraine is showing us the, that a democracy is worth fighting for, that it's something that it's very valuable. You see people um, risking their lives in order to uh, to attain the freedom that, that was the promise of the West, but that seemed in past years to, to have been um, an unfulfilled promise or a tired promise and seemed to have lost its energy. And so there's almost... Um, I, I wouldn't. I don't really see in the West a um, a retreat into the nation state. I mean, it's it's almost the European Union's brightest hour right now. The way uh, European countries are coming together, are overcoming some of those divisions that had been broken up in in, in past years, in in an act with a speed and unity that we had never we had never seen before. That, that's one aspect that we're seeing. But we also seeing a very conscious attempt i think in the reaction to to, to these developments to to bring dif together different narratives so in the european union of course um the the attempt to become independent of russian gas and oil is something that aligns with the with, with the determination to to tackle the climate crisis and so there there's we can really bring together three different narratives here. We can bring together the geoeconomic narrative, which cautions against vulnerability vis-a-vis uh, um, -vis a strategic foe, with the resilience narrative, um, which teaches us that we, we can't have fragile supply chains in the way we had during the pandemic, and the, the global threats narrative about the climate crisis. And so the, these narratives are now coming together and, and um, coinciding with this kind of rebirth of confidence um, that that we're seeing in in parts of the West, in the United States, it's a bit. There's the protectionist narrative is much stronger. So the 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 idea that we need trade protection for its own sake. So in that way, Trump has really won uh, won the battle on trade policy. The Democrats are almost going all the way uh, with, with Trump's position. That's a bit different in Europe, but we we, we doing. I think we see uh, this new burst of confidence coinciding with a conscious attempt to bring some of these new narratives together and, and into um, a big uh, policy push. Nicholas, I'm also interested in hearing your thoughts on how international trade and financial organisations fit within all of this. And of course, you've got direct experience working within the, the World Trade Organisation. What role do you see for the, the WTO, but also the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, 
playing into the future um, as as we see the complexity of these different narratives colliding. Is there a, a continued role for these institutions? Are they likely to reform themselves to be relevant in a new context, or do you think they're going to cling to the establishment narrative? Well, to some extent, they have to cling to the establishment narrative because it allows them to, oh, especially I'm talking particularly about the World Trade Organization, it gives them a, a an apolitical role, right? It, it gives them the role of growing wealth and uh, allows them to to push the messy political problems of, of wealth distribution to the domestic level. So the, the WTO is very comfortable Saying that it that it it's making sure that trade flows f- uh, freely and and we can grow the pie, it is not that comfortable pining on the distributive questions that have been ha- have been coming to the fore and that have assumed center stage, for example, in U.S. trade policy. The other problem that we the WTO confronts, of course, is that the United States has basically decided that in its trade relationship with China, which is uh, for the U.S. the most important trade relationship, uh, the the WTO is basically useless. So it's it's pursuing its trade relationship uh, with China outside of the multilateral framework. Um, it has sabotaged uh, the dispute settlement system in the World Trade Organization. That doesn't mean that other powers and other important trade uh, flows are not still captured by the WTO. So interestingly, uh, the European Union and China and Canada are working, and Australia are working very closely t- uh, together in the World Trade Organization to to resurrect the dispute settlement system. In fact, they have um, constructed a replacement mechanism uh, while the Apple body, which had been disabled by the United States, is, is out of business. So I do think among um, certain powers with very strong um, multilateral leanings, such as the European Union, but also also China, Canada, and Australia. There will be still, and the WTO will still be used. It will still be playing a role. But of course, when it comes to these uh, big geoeconomic conflicts, as now between um, Russia and the West, and also between China and the United States, these international organizations are essentially just being pushed to the sidelines and and won't be um, won't be a significant forum to address these concerns. Anthea, we sometimes we talk on the pod. In fact, we. We do talk a lot on this pod about the idea of valuing care, so how economic systems can take better account of things that are essential to our lives but not necessarily accounted for in measures like gross domestic product or a lot of our economic measures globally. We're talking here about things like caring for the environment and preventing climate change, acknowledging and valuing unpaid work, issues like class and gender that cut across a a number of the areas that we've touched on already today. The book that you and Nicholas have written for us provides this extraordinary global framework and international structure to providing insight into the machinations and the way in which uh, global power takes place. I wonder how we can use this approach to improve lives at a local level. And I was particularly struck that at the end of your book, you make quite a compelling argument for integrative thinking. Uh, I particularly liked the notion that we transition from our Occam's razor approach of looking for the simplistic or the the unifying uh, thesis towards an Occam's quilt appreciating complexity. And I wonder if you'd like to comment a little bit further about whether this way of thinking, the problem solving, how badly that might be needed and how important that might be for our future. Absolutely. I mean, I think in many ways you can read this book on two different levels. So on one level, it is about the pushback against economic globalization and the different narratives that have come to the fore and how how that may suggest where we might be moving forward with economic policies. But on another level, economic globalization is simply an example of a complex problem. And what we're trying to do is to showcase a different and more integrative way of understanding and approaching uh, these sorts of complex problems. And that is one which uh, evidence is something that psychologists call integrative complexity. So integrative complexity is an ability to see complex problems from many different perspectives with many shades of grey and to also uh, integrate those different perspectives into frameworks and into different ways of understanding that may sort of help to move us forward. And one of the things that has been extremely striking to me in our work on this book is how much you cannot understand a complex problem like the pushback against economic globalization or frankly things like climate change or inequality unless you are prepared to take 
a more of a multi-perspective and multidisciplinary approach. And it really strikes me of the limits that we have in our university approaches, but also our governmental departmental approaches. I think many of the structures that we have in the academy and also in government are much more of those sort of 20th century, let's divide and specialize. And that we want the political scientists, we want the economists, we uh, want the physicists, we want everybody to specialize in what they do. Yet when you're actually dealing with complex problems, what we really know is that there's an importance in in taking a complexity approach, in taking a systems approach, and in understanding not everything done individually with everything else held equal, but in those complex and unpredictable interactions, which is captured by that idea of the Occam's quilt rather than Occam's razor. And so one of the challenges I think going forward is really an institutional challenge. How can we better uh, do our training, do our disciplinary departments uh, in universities, do our uh, departments in government so that we can encourage people to develop these multifocal, multi-perspective taking approaches that encourage them to seek integrative solutions that go across domains, across silos, across disciplines. And my own sense is at the moment that we're not doing nearly enough with that and that the sort of wicked problems that we're facing going forward will really require us to rethink expertise and uh, training. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't an extraordinary room for um, different disciplinary expertise and experts in particular subject areas. There absolutely is. But we also need to be training a generation of people that are better at this integrative work, this systems thinking. And that's something I think we should be doing in places like the ANU, but also across the country. Mm, I suspect that'll resonate quite a lot with a number of people listening to today's podcast. If I can add uh, on what 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 does it mean for local um, local debates, I mean, and in, in, I think it's it's so directly applicable um, to to local debates because our approach really has has two elements. One is that we we don't um, try to treat we try to treat the other narratives. Um, without any contempt, right? So we're trying to remove contempt from the discussion and try to give us the most sympathetic reading possible to these, uh, to, to the narratives that, that we may not be, agree with. And I found that to be a, um, an incredibly healthy, um, approach, even in domestic, uh, political debates. I mean, we all, we see the culture wars in the United States. Uh, we see something similar happening in Canada. We just had these trucker protests in, 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 in Ottawa and, it's so easy to try to inflame uh, these debates to to caricature the people on the other side, and taking a step back, trying to understand where they're coming from, trying to tell the story from their point of view, which is essentially what we're trying to do in the book, is um, I think incredibly healthy in order to help us to to move beyond these these incredible divisions that have been happening, opening up, have been opening up. Because we also have to recognize that this is a, a great moment of political opportunity. Many of the dogmas of the past uh, three decades are going out of the window at, at, at breakneck speed. The obsession with efficiency, the, the idea that the market can do everything best, um, the idea that the state is, is somehow a problem. So, so there's a lot of opportunity to, to adopt creative approaches, um, to think outside the box. But of course, in order to do that, we need to have a healthy political debate. And and we, we hope that the approach that we describe in the book, which may seem naive or idealistic to some, is actually our best hope for for getting to a more productive um, political conversation. Nicholas, one of the conversations that, that we often have here on the pod is that um, it's the conversations that are often seen as naive or unrealistic that are the conversations that will actually bring about positive changes and, and that we need to have in order to address the kinds of wicked problems that, that you've been talking about and that you talk about in the book. Um, but, Anthea, I, I wanted to, to pick up on the point that you were making about the need to move beyond disciplinary or sectoral silos that and and the way that those divisions still shape what happens um, within universities and also within government. And I wanted to think about this particularly in terms of, of government and policymaking. How do we begin to think about restructuring policy processes and 
the the institutions that shape those policy processes, both within the public sector, but perhaps with also in in parliaments, in a way that sees compassion and caring as central, um, and is able to move beyond both the the political and ideological divisions of the past, but also those disciplinary and expertise divisions that mean we're often talking across purposes rather than coming together to solve deeply challenging problems. How do we begin to do that? It's a, it's an absolutely fantastic question. I, I um as as you both do as well, uh, spend a lot of time working with policymakers in Canberra and also out, outside of Australia. And this is this is a challenge that I see them facing, and it's also a challenge that's really inspiring the next generation of work that I want to do, and also that Nicholas is doing. Where I see this playing out at the moment in government is I see two different areas where we're really uh, pushing for these more integrative solutions. So one of them is around things like the national interest, where uh, with kind of concerns about resilience and economics and, and also national security, we're starting to sort of see a more integrative function of the national interest that really has economic security and social values, and we're trying to understand, like, how do those integrate? And yet in another part of government and internationally, we're seeing another integrative debate that's happening. And this one is about sustainable development, where you're starting to see the environment, economics and and the social integrated. And if you think about those two different integrative um, functions, I actually think we, we want to be learning lessons from how we're integrating those, but we also want to integrate the two of those together. And that would actually give you something which because two of them have two in common. They both have economics, they both have social values, but you're also wanting to add the environment and you're wanting to add security. And interestingly, um, a lot of the communities that sort of gravitate more to the, the environmental one or more to the security one often have quite different kind of understandings of the world. So it, it, this is going to be a sort of a challenging integration. My own view, though, is that we need to be sort of looking at those areas where that sort of integrative work is starting to happen and starting to, to um, not just work out policies but also institutional structures. So I'm very struck, for example, in my area of geoeconomics, that if I go and present uh, some of what we do in Treasury versus in Defence, there are very, very different assumptions in the room because of the different kind of worldviews and disciplinary backgrounds. But if you look at some of the new kind of integrative issue areas that have been established in PMC, and two in particular, the um, Office of Supply Chain Resilience and the one dealing with uh, critical minerals, they are both ones that have been set up in this new era specifically with an integrative approach because they understand that these kind of complex issues cannot be owned by defence, cannot be owned by treasury, cannot be owned by industry. And so they're creating these sort of integrative groups within government that have the DNA of people coming from different disciplinary backgrounds and different departments. My own feeling is that those are seeds showing the kind of work that we are going to be working towards going forward and the kind of integrative institutional structures and that, that we should be looking to those as examples that we may want to grow and build and sort of diversify over time as a different way forward. We are almost out of time in a conversation which I could quite comfortably continue for many hours. Uh, but I'm going to finish by asking both of you to perhaps reflect on the conversation so far and on the work that you're both involved with now. If you could boil it down to one key lesson that you'd like people and particularly policymakers to take from the work, what would it be? The deepest lesson I would say is that when we deal with complex and contested problems, we need to understand multiple perspectives and we need to approach them with cognitive empathy. We need to try to see things through different eyes and try to understand what it is that different communities are valuing, even if you don't agree with it, so that you can understand what is motivating different groups. Because if you want to see an issue in the round and try to work out alliances moving forward, I think that cognitive empathy, rather than the polarisation and distrust and contempt that we see in current debates, is really our best antidote. Mm, I like that a lot. Nicholas? Yeah, and just building on what Anthea said, uh, what our experience engaging with the narratives uh, taught us that there, there, there are two two lessons that we that we learn. First, we understand 
problems better if we listen to more different voices. So we you gain a better analytical understanding of globalization, for example, if you look at it through the lens of all the six narratives, because you every narrative sees things that the other narratives don't see. So, so it's it's just even if you um, don't have a particular political project, just understanding it, it better is is something that that these narratives will facilitate. But the other important experience uh, that that we had is that if we put ourselves into the shoes of the proponents of the different narratives, we were also much better able to understand the where they were coming from, and we started to appreciate that there was some truth in each one of the narratives. And so that made us be much more humble towards our own perspectives. And and, and, it, and it allowed us to see our own perspectives, our own um, um, ideology, our own narratives from the outside. And therefore, um, made us more sensitive to how our own narrative sounds to others. And so I think that that's, that's a, a really important experience because it... Um, as as we've been as we've been saying, what we really want to uh, produce is a more productive debate that that is not marked by needless polarization and that is marked by by real understanding of of each other. And so this this experience of of engaging with these different narratives, putting ourselves in, into the shoes of proponents of different narratives, has really um, taught us how valuable that is. Nicholas, I don't think we could ask for a more powerful message um, just at the moment. This has been an extraordinary conversation. Thank you both so much for joining us, um, for having this conversation. Thank you both for writing the book. I would really encourage listeners to, to read it. It is a fantastic read. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. So, Sharon, I could have talked to Nicholas and Anthea about uh, economic globalisation and particularly this extraordinary structure that they've given for thinking and, and approaching complex, wicked problems. I, I could have spoken to them for many hours. I found their, the structure of their book, um, the six faces or the six narratives that are commonly associated with economic globalisation, it's deeply informative for me about how I approach politics globally, regionally and even locally. It's tremendously helpful in how we might be able to solve problems. What did you think of today's discussion? Yeah, look, like you, I think this this is a fantastic book. It's a, it's a book for deep thinking and for sense-making. Um, and I think that came across in, in the conversation today. I, I really, really enjoyed it. And I really loved the way that both Anthea and Nicholas took what um, at, at times seemed to be quite lofty ideas and narratives um, that are playing out in very complex ways, the way that they're able to bring that back to say, and this is what it means for our lives. This is what it means for the structures and the institutions of governance and decision-making. Um, and this this is what it means for some of the real policy challenges that we're, we're confronting in the world today. And I think that idea of moving beyond silos of expertise to sharing knowledge about how we confront problems and coming at policy challenges in a in a way that that is humble was so mm. powerful yeah, no, the framework that allows us to deliberately think our way through different sides of the story or as the, the analogy from their book, the different faces of the Rubik's Cube. It, it's a strategy that fosters creativity, that allows us to facilitate compassion and caring in terms of our policy response. And I, I do, I, I was really struck by the way in which Nicholas described uh, the, the way in which that might, might create a more humble form of policy, one which is uh, much more likely to, to create a better world for all of us. Yeah, and, and I think if, if we are able to do that, Anna Greta, then the possibility of genuinely valuing care and, mm. and placing care for, for people, for the planet, for the, for our societies and communities at the centre is far greater. So it was an optimistic conversation, I think. It was, absolutely. We'll leave a link to the book and any of the other publications that we've mentioned in today's show notes on policyforum.net. Uh, and we recommend that you check out the website there. Thank you, listeners, for joining us again. We are very much enjoying the feedback that we have from our listeners and from our community more broadly. Uh, and last week, we asked you to tell your friends if you're enjoying the show, and lots of you did. And so we're really grateful for that. We know that the, the pod is reaching a larger audience. If there are episodes that you think would be of interest to you and to your networks, please consider sharing uh, and you'll find the full series of our, the podcasts that we've released in the last couple of years on policyforum.net and wherever you get your podcasts from. 
You can reach out to us on Twitter at APPS Policy Forum, Apps Policy Forum. You can email us directly at podcast at policyforum.net. We do love to hear feedback and ideas. Please join the Facebook group. You can type in Policy Forum Pod into the search bar and join into that conversation group. And we will be back next week. So from Anna Greta Hunter, see you next week. And from me, Sharon Bessel, bye-bye for now. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.